everybody. Welcome to the Family Jewels True Crime Podcast. My name is Brian Sobolewski, and I'm your host. Welcome to episode six. This is, if you leave me, it'll hurt, but if you stay, it might kill me. Very apt title for what we're going to talk about today, because we're going to talk about the first time, post-prison, or ever, that I fell in love. Now, here I am at this point, I'm close to, so I got out when I was 30, you know, been working at ballet, so I'm 33 at this point. I think and I met this first love and I believe everybody gets three major loves in their life three 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 if you get four you're lucky major ones that affect you and change you change who you are ones that you will always go back and reference when talking to a potential new great love and I've had my three so you know not to sound pessimistic but I'm out, man. I, I, when it comes to love, I do not mix well with that emotion. That emotion stirs things in me that I can't handle. I cannot handle love on love's terms. Can't do it. And I have multiple examples, one of which I'm going to give you now. Or in this episode, because now we're going to take care of just a little bit of business. Please uh, direct your attention to and visit um, xconcomedy.com. That is my new website that I just put up. Super excited. That is where you can get show information, the show that we are doing on March 26th here in Boca Raton, Florida. So if you are anywhere near this area, get it. Get in your F-150 and drive on over to Boca where all the Jews are, where all us Jewish people are. I'm not Jewish, but I'm Polish. I may as well. I'm a, I'm a poor Jew because <laughs> um, we suffered right along with them. Um, and come come to the show. It's going to be fantastic. You know, and in and, and putting this show together, it's just all my friends. All, all my friends are going to be at this show, in this show. And it's going to be, I can't imagine that that's going to suck. Not for me anyway. So I hope you guys enjoy it. I will record it and I will put a recording of it on the website. And uh, hopefully uh, you will be able to check that out at uh, xconcomedy.com. Um, so, I do have a working definition here of determinism, and super important that we, uh, for me anyway, to get, get what is a determinant, right? So I am in this therapy, I have this therapist, Bob, and you know, we're starting to comb my unconscious. And I'm going to go over some of, some of the bigger tenets here, or show you how some of the tenets that I have read to you previously are actually used and put into the actual practice of determinism. So a determinant is something that has a role in causing or determining an outcome. Pretty, pretty easy, right? Heat is a significant determinant of forcing something to boil, right? Every, every action has an equal and opposite reaction, and that is a statement of determinism. Um, one who views all things, including human actions, as resulting solely and exclusively from factors or determinants is known as a determinist. Put another way, a determinist believes that although one makes voluntary, conscious decisions, those decisions are required by his unique myriad of determinants. As sophisticated and, as sophisticated and complex animals, Humans have determinants ranging, ranging from genes to upbringing, culture, current situation, unconscious activity, past experiences, and conscious thought. Just going to read that again, okay? As sophisticated and complex animals, humans have determinants ranging from genes to upbringing, culture, current situation, unconscious activity, past experiences and conscious thought. That's in a nutshell the things that determinism look at. Okay, so one of the things when I went into therapy and I would be sitting there talking to Bob, Bob would continually say, and I'd be like, hey, I had another sit down at work. My bosses are going to fire me because that, that's the point I'm at. I'm at the point now where I leave Bally's, I leave the nutrition store, but before I leave the nutrition store, I met this girl. She was 20, I was 33, 13 years older than her. And 
it, it was wow I don't know how to describe it like she came on pretty strong she came up to me at work and I was I think I was shelving bottles of organic juice and she walks over to me and she's like hey you know maybe we can go to coffee sometime and as she said it I put I was picking up a bottle put it on the shelf it hit the corner of the shelf shattered the bottle juice goes all over me all over the floor I turn or I make this motion to try to save it and I push the the bottle up onto the shelf and knock another section of about four more bottles off of the shelf they go careening to the floor I am in sticky disgusting juice um, and she's laughing her ass off pretty pretty cool way to meet somebody but um, I ended up it was the day before Thanksgiving I remember a Wednesday the 23rd I guess maybe Thanksgiving was on the 24th and she calls me up and she's like hey you wanna let's do something and I'm like you know it's the day before Thanksgiving it's not like anything's open there's no there's nothing there's no Starbucks open at that point it's kind of late and I'm like all right well I'll be right over I go and I pick her up and we end up going to Rockport why do I take her to Rockport I loved Rockport if you've never been to Rockport Massachusetts it is as quaint and little as you can imagine uh, quaint and little New England town being you could equate it to Gloucester which is actually spelled Gloucester Gloucester is how it's but we have Gloucester um, that's a port town very very cute very New England house you really cannot think of anything you know, get you got to think of a port town like that when you think of New England but on a smaller quainter maybe more upscale uh, a lot of art galleries um, at I don't understand at but they also had cool ice cream shops and they had two or three little candy shops where you can go in and get Fu Manchu gum. I remember Fu Manchu gum. It was delicious. I don't even know what flavor it was, but it was delicious and there was a fortune inside. And I would go to Rockport, which was about a 25 minute drive from Peabody where I grew up. She lived in Hamilton, Mass. And um, she had one of those big McMansions. So her parents were in real, uh, they were realtors. And you just saw these just monster homes just being erected, but they were just so cheaply built. And you could tell like every house looked the same except they moved the garage over to the right instead of the left, so it was a little bit distinguishable. They moved another thing over a dormer and they moved, put it here instead of there. There was a round window instead of a square. So there were modifications to each of the houses, but you could it was like it was like dealing with a bunch of non-fraternal twins, like non-identical, I mean fraternal. It was like a, a street full of identical yet somehow weirdly fraternal twins. <laughs> Long way to go to describe this house, but you know, it was, it, it was somebody who's not rich trying to be rich. And they certainly had more than me. I mean, if we compared their house to grandma's house, grandma's house was a bunch of splinters holding hands, Bun's house. It really was a little shithole. Like that thing, if it, if anything sparks anywhere on the inside walls of that house, you were going to see a Roman candle go off at 553 Lincoln Avenue in Saugus. You know, I know it's snowing up there, but if it happens tonight, man, we'll drive out to it because it'll be a spectacular light show. Might be able to see it from anywhere in Massachusetts. But uh, I go and I pick her up and we go to Rockport and we're hanging out by the ocean because absolutely nothing, nothing is open. And the second... She moved in and put her arms around me. I was a dead duck, dead, in the water, done. I was like, holy, like, not a single step of mine hit the ground anymore. I was floating. But at the same time, there was this seed of anxiety. Like, like hey, I just had an amazing meal, but, I, but it might make me sick. You know what I mean? It was that. And that that is... Again, I, I talk to people that have been in love. I like I like I tell you or told you in the last episode. I always take out the normalcy measuring stick. That that hey, does Bry measure up to this? Is Bry anywhere close to this person in the way that they lived their life and the way that they were brought up and the parents that they had? And you know, well, geez, no, nobody put a gun in their hand and asked them to rob a jewelry store. So that's pretty much where the comparisons end. 
But I don't also want to sit here and tell you that, oh, I'm always going to be different from everybody else. But it is something that I'm trying still to this day, at this stupid age, trying to figure out. Still trying to figure it out. And I'll tell you what I'll give an example of it was last week. A bunch of us went to comedy. We, we left. Uh, we uh, left the show, went out to have a couple beers afterwards, which is super cool. I like it. But I was sitting with four people, normal, really normal people. You know, families, you know, kids, dogs, Teslas. You know, you know, I'm talking about your case. Um, and I can't help it. I can't help it because any and my buddy even said to me, "Hey, Brian, you were really quiet." And I, he's never seen that part of me because I'm normally loud. <laughs> I don't have a problem telling you what I think, giving you my opinion usually. But there are times that that I get shrouded in this, hey, I'm just so fucking different that I don't wanna, I don't wanna try. I don't wanna try to fit in right now. And I don't know that if people know how hard it is for, for you know, people like us, I guess. I don't know if I wanna put anyone else in my category, but I, I think a lot of people struggle with that. Um, me, I am, I am no different, so. At the same time that I am falling in love and, and it is very uncomfortable to me, I am building this. So the more in love I fall, the more this level of anxiety starts to bubble up in me, right? So I, I this is another, this was another reason why I went to Bob. And this is another reason why I ended up picking my sessions up to twice a week. Because Here's one of the things I believe wholeheartedly about, all, you know, all the things in psychology, all the concepts about whatever, the id, the ego, they, they could be bullshit, they may not, they're impossible to prove. Um, if I believe in lies about myself, I will struggle. And to the extent that my lies, are, my beliefs are rooted in reality, I will thrive. So right there is a concept that I got to chew on. So Bob, Bob says that to me. So the, the common things that would be said in a session that we would go over continually because it wasn't always just, hey, I have this problem and maybe you can go in and talk to this person and try to smooth it out with that person. That's what normal therapy was. This was, hey, Bob. I'm having trouble at work. I got pulled in the office again. Somebody complained about me. The owners are threatening to fire me because they're getting this on a very regular basis. And he would say, you know, Bri, you're struggling here because you believe in lies about yourself. And I'm like, no, just tell me what to do. I don't believe. What are you talking about? Well, yeah, we'll get to that later. But that was the work. That was the work. So if you leave me, you'll hurt me. But if you stay, you may kill me. Is, is the same thing, like, you know, you think about that in romantic wise, but it was the same situation at work. I valued that job. I put extra time into that job. I made extra money for those people and it made me extra money. I knew that was part of what I was supposed to do. But at the same time, I was ambivalent. And that's another concept that's in this. So to the extent that I believe in lies, I will struggle. And I believed all the all the beliefs that I had were lies, and we'll get into each one and every one of the lies that I believed. And um, I'm not self-made. I didn't make myself. Somebody else made me, and they they may not have done the right job. And okay, go back <laughs> to any episode in this podcast, and you will see how horribly wrong that has gone for me. So. I've always had a and ran on a belief system that fed me a bunch of bullshit. So Bob would, would constantly say, you're not self-made. You believe in lies. Let's figure out which lie you believe in. And the ambivalence part was, it was a hard pill for me to swallow. It was a hard concept for me to grasp. Ambivalence is I feel, I can't feel only one way about something. So to the extent that I am neurotic and I have a, a, a developed neurotic side, that neurotic side is going to do the exact opposite of 
what the healthy side is doing. So my healthy side wants to be in love with this girl, wants to give her everything, wants to be part of her life, while my neurotic side only sees her as a threat and only sees the, the way out in, in this, the way to get out of it would be a terrorist act. I have to hurt her some way, you know, that makes her hate me because I can't handle it anymore. And Bob would drive home to me, Brian, you are ambivalent about all things. Okay, I get it. Well, so if you love her, your neurotic side hates her. And wow. And this is where we get to the point that I ended up grabbing him. Up to that point, I had gone in and I'd, I'd mainly talk about work. I would mainly talk about this girl or I'd mainly talk about my dad. I would go in and talk about how much I hated him. And like Bob would be like, okay, that's the work. We got to get this stuff out. We got to talk about your feelings. But... He was very crafty in staying away from the topic of mom until, you know, probably two or three months into therapy, right about where we're at. And he's talking to me about ambivalence and he's talking to me about not being self-made and he's talking to me about the people that develop me. And I would be like, oh, I'd go right to my dad. He said one time, you know, I wonder, I wonder what you think about or how you feel about your mother and all this. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And he made the most valid, valid and excellent point that if your dad wreaked all this havoc on you, she allowed him in. She came together with him and had children with him with no plan. And she allowed him to continue to have influence over your life. And I want to tell you something. I got up. This was an automatic response. I said, don't. I got up. I went over to him, I grabbed him by the scruff of his neck, I pointed a finger at him so he could smell my breath. And I said, don't you ever talk about my mother like that again, ever. And I left. And let me tell you, I, like I told you, I went to every single therapy session kicking and screaming. I hated it. I hated it, hated it, hated it because he was so good. He was so good at calling me out on my own shit. Oh, and this was another time that he did it. And I... My response not only backed up the idea that I needed to be in therapy a lot, one of the reasons why I kicked it up to twice. I wasn't sure he was gonna let me back. Like he called me an hour after it and he said, listen, we should talk about this. And I, you know, I understand and I'm not afraid of your anger. Bob was just, this guy was just amazing, man. He's like, listen, I wanna let you know, I'm not afraid of your anger. You can come and kick and scream and destroy my office if you want, but it's gonna have consequences. If you ever lay your hands on me again, there will be consequences, but I'm not afraid of it. And I need, you know, he was just trying to establish some sort of boundary, which is super, super important. And he took me back and I was amazed. I was amazed by this. And I don't know, maybe he knew how much I needed it. Maybe he didn't think, you know, maybe he knew he was poking. And I'll tell you, so many of the better therapists out there are so afraid to poke the bear. And he wasn't, which is why I think he ended up taking me back. I think he ended up taking me back because he knew. He knew he poked and he knew he knew the, that response was possible. But of course, then, you know, we got to sit and really examine it. And I'm glad we did. One of the lies that I believed in is that you defend mom to the death. To the death. I'd die for you. I would die for you. I love you to death is not a term Bob liked. I love you to death. Well, how about I love you to life? Like I, love does not, that's so Romeo and Juliet-esque, but you know, we'd say it all the time. God, I love you, I would die for you. Well, the first lie is that your mother needs to be defended and that you should do that with at any, you know, by any means possible. And I took that lie into my relationship. So, you know, the very beginnings of, of a relationship have this good mom quality. And Bob was so good at describing this. He says, you know, that beginning part of the relationship, she's good mom. She, she does nice things for you. She rubs your back. She gives you orgasms. Although that's a little creepy, but stay with me. Doesn't mean that you wanted to bang your mom but that your neurotic side can't help but you know 
be satiated by those things. All of you is satiated by those things, right? If they start off as good mom or good dad, depending on your gender. I'm not saying that this is just a strictly male thing. And over time, when good mom says, hey, well, what time are you gonna be home? And what are you doing this Saturday? You're not going out with your friends and you're gonna watch the football game. And mom starts, that good mom starts to impose her will and, start, and starts having expectations. She slowly starts to become bad mom. And this explains, you know, why, you know, any long-term relationship, the language changes from, ah, oh, what a bitch. You know, oh, I love her to, to, to death, ugh, to, oh, what a bitch. Oh my God, she's controlling. Oh my God, leave me alone. I, you know, this is, this, is, this is strangling me. I don't have my freedom. You know, and you see that a lot. I think it's a typical pattern for relationships. But my reaction to that, that session that violent visceral reaction that I had pointed out a very important lie is that mom needs to be defended. That was something huge. So sitting here struggling with my ambivalence, the fact that I'm ambivalent about my job, meaning I love it so much. I put so much stock into it when, and Bob's like, Hey, it's a, it's a paycheck. It's a means to an end. You have to do it so you can do all the great things that it allows you to do, but no, this is my life. You have no idea how much I put into that job, which makes me good at it now, which is why I'm good at it now. So, you know, there were, there's a lot of positive to that work, but at the same time, as much as I said I loved it, my behavior said something different. And that was a huge, um, it was enlightening. Meaning it was like, oh, one of the, uh, an aha moment, like, bam, wow, you just hit me right in the noggin with that. Was that my words said, I love this job, it's important to me. My behavior of me putting extra work into it, working extra hours, building their personal training you know, program and um, working extra hours if they, if they gave it to me. I never said no to anything that they asked me to do. That behavior showed that I wanted and love that job. But there was also significant behavior saying that I don't think I'm worthy of it. I don't think I'm worthy of this girl. I don't think I'm worthy of this job. So I will act accordingly. Beliefs foster behavior. So if you wanna know why somebody's behaving a certain way, it's how they believe. So Bob used to say questions. When you ask somebody a question, it is the worst form of obtaining information or obtaining truth. You'll get information, but whether or not it's truth, it's the worst way. If you want to know how somebody feels, look at how they behave. He kicks me in the face, but he loves me is not the formula, right? That's, there's something really wrong with that. So he'd always say, if you want to know if this girl loves you, what is her behavior? Oh, well, she treats me like shit. Well, then this is, this, you got a decent amount of evidence that says she doesn't. So what are you doing? It's, it's that kind of thing. So dealing, dealing with my ambivalence, dealing with the idea that I'm not self-made, dealing with the idea that um, if you leave me, I'll be hurt. But if you stay, it might kill me. I'm back in therapy with Bob. He lets me back in but after I almost kill him. And, and we start delving into, you know, what, what that was about. And, and, you know, when a new idea comes into your head, when you're exploring these, you know, am I ambivalent? I'm not self-made. So, you know, what do I do with that information? Does that autom automatically mean that I just start blaming mom and dad? Well, yeah, because... Another concept of not being self-made is that because you're not self-made, you don't owe your parents anything. And how many of you are sitting out there right now and like, oh my God, my parents, they fed me, they clothed me, they put me through school, they blah, blah, blah. And you know, now you feel as if you owe some debt to them, but you didn't ask to be born. I didn't ask to come into this. I didn't ask for my crazy mother to get together with my sociopathic dad and fucking bang one out and produce people that are gonna be brought into a shitstorm. 
right? There was no forethought. You know, you need the license to fish, not to have a kid. Yeah, we've all had that discussion. But that ain't changing. Ain't going to ever be a licensing for parenting. That being said, you know, how much of the... um, how much of the of the blame belongs to you? Well, I'll tell you what. All of it belongs to you right now. Meaning if you're struggling with stuff right now, you're you're the only one that can get you out of it. But in terms of why it's there. So if you if I do have a lie, it's there. It's embedded. It's been there for a long time. It's been pulling the strings you know, for decades, you know, how do I change it? Well, first you got to unearth it and then you have to start studying it. And the ambivalent thing was very, very tough for me. I realize, I realized and realize now that as much as I loved my mother, part of me had to hate her. Part of me had to. I'm sorry, it just defies logic that, you know, you, you get kicked enough that, it, that feelings are, are going to develop that say, hey, I'm not getting hugged right now, I'm getting kicked. Um, I fucking hate you for that. I hate you. And that was, and of course I have to take that and stuff it. And that ends up being the, the part of the, an ingredient in the stew that becomes an unconscious that is doing things outside of my consciousness that are causing me problems. And again, I'm giving you multiple examples of this. The other, the other thing that was very helpful that Bob turned me on to is, you know, he encouraged me to recognize my patterns. And for me, I started to act in this relationship with this girl exactly like I didn't want to be in it anymore. She slowly started to become bad mom. Guys, the promo code for uh, tickets to Sentence to Stand Up is S-E-N the number two in S-T-N-D. Sen to stand, abbreviated. S-E-N, the number two in S-T-N-D. 25% off tickets. Uh, even if you can't come, you should buy a ticket. Support Family Jewels Podcast. Just kidding. Um, okay, so struggling with the idea that um, for every light side, there's a dark side. For every feeling, there's an opposite feeling that if not acknowledged, will come up and wreak havoc in your life some other way. And again, as scientists, Bob and I sitting down and trying to figure out scientifically what my behavior is saying, I am screaming at this point that this relationship is too provocative. And that's one of the things that Bob would say to me. At one point, he encouraged me to leave the relationship that I kept going in and complaining about. He's like, well, geez, you're only, you know, if you came in here and talked about how much support you were getting and how much of this and how much of that, my complaint, we weren't having sex enough. What a piece of shit. Like, like, listen, and, and it was a male, that's a male lie that the barometer that I need to use is how many times she opens her legs and gives me access to her vagina is not a measuring stick. And if it is your measuring stick, you're fucked. Oh, well, or you're not fucked. <laughs> um, it, it's just, it's just, it just doesn't work. It is not the recipe for building a lasting, peaceful, wonderful partnership. So, when I would go in and we, I would talk to Bob, he would try to expose these male uh, lies, you know, cultural lies, but also try to put it in the reference of why, why specifically me is, it, you know, why I'm, is this situation so provocative to me? The other thing that, that he, he said is, listen, if you're going to put uh, pressure on your relationship in the form of sex frequency, Right? I need to, hey, we've only done it twice this week. It's Thursday. We better get to work. Well, geez, that's not an invite to fun. And um, he said, you know, why, why do you want to have sex? And I said, because it feels good. And he says, okay, well, what does that do? And I said, well, it gives me an orgasm. And he says, well, if you wanted an orgasm, Bri, I, could, I, I wager you could give yourself one. And it would probably be you know, as good, if not better. You know, I'd been doing it to myself for 20 something years at that point, 30 something years at that point. Just such a valid point. 
It's an amazingly valid point that, listen, if, if my default setting says, okay, I need to have an orgasm X number times a week, well, I don't put that on my mate. I don't say, hey, well, you know, put that on your schedule because now you're in charge of my orgasms. You know, it just, it, it really helped me. It helped me say, hey, that, that type of pressure doesn't belong in a relationship. And always the best sex in the world was when, you know, you came together and you wanted, you know, I wanted her and she wanted me. Not, hey, I want you. You're not really in the mood, but there's a quota. I got a quota. Or I'm going to think there's something wrong. Jealousy rears its head. All, you know, lies just breed a lot of other bullshit. And my bullshit was no different. My bullshit got right in the way. So I will tell you, I was very typical in this relationship. And as soon as another girl started batting her eyelashes at me, I broke up with her. I broke up with the girl that I was head over heels in love with, or said that I was, 10 months after I met her. You know, which is when the lust starts to wear off. And I would go in with complaints that we weren't banging enough. And Bob would, would put it on me. And that was very helpful and it de definitely helped in the relationship. But then there was this wave of, well, Jesus, it sounds to me like this girl's going to stay. So she's got to go. What, right? That, that, that's the contradiction I was living at that time. She wants to stay and love me. So she's got to go. And that's something Bob pointed out to me. He said, listen, I got to tell you that, that it sounds to me that your neurotic side refuses to to be in this to be okay in this and not to always wonder when the guillotine blade is going to come down and chop your head off and that that's basically what i was doing when i know it's going to happen so it's up to me to try to control when it happens and how it happens so i'll break up with her or i'll start acting like an asshole so that she'll just i think i just stopped talking to her really i it was awful she would call me and call me and call me and I wouldn't call her back. And she's like, what's going on with us? What's going on with us? And I was just, <laughs> I was a dick. But it, that's how strong my unconscious brain said, listen, she wants to stay. Boot that bitch out. Um, I gotta say, I go back and I listen to all of these. And if, if, it, if I sound different, it's because I'm in a different studio. And so if there's reverb or something, that doesn't sound right. I'm doing my best to control those audio issues, so. I hope it doesn't sound too different. It didn't sound like it did, but just an FYI for you guys. So we broke up and I started dating this other girl. And this other girl, um, it was just, I don't know. It, you know, as Bob pointed out, he says, I think we need to really focus on what your neurotic side is trying to tell us. And that is that love is just too provocative and that I am not comfortable in it. And I have to leave it and I have to go to this next one and start this whole process over again of getting to know this person. So I was actually addicted to the beginning of relationships. I was not very interested in staying in them because it was, um, it was too hard. It was, it was just too hard for me. And, um, I was, <laughs> I was still struggling at work. So although at this point, things did start to taper off in terms of I was able to catch behavior. Nothing is worse to me than two things that I, I can't stand. Like, like I feel my soul trying to escape my body as I'm doing it. One is small talk. And as you know, in my profession as a personal trainer, I do have to engage in small talk. I have to, but um, it, it hurts it's not always so bad and I do get numb to it but um, beyond that small talk is just very it's I have a very interesting reaction to it and um, I it's <laughs> the other thing that makes me nuts is having to portray a mood when I'm the exact opposite and listen I teach group exercise classes so and I do comedy. You you guys, those those of you that do comedy, you know that, hey, I'm depressed. I'm in a shitty mood. I had a terrible day, but I got to get on that stage and I have to try to get a crowd of people that are probably all feeling the same thing to not feel that same thing. And and it's it's easy to turn that switch on when you get on stage. 
but it's very difficult to do in my job. So if I'm in a shitty mood and I got to come in and I got to elevate a bunch of people's moods to something above, you know, where mine is, it's super hard. It, it's, it takes a lot of my psychic energy to do it, which is why I, I was so terrible um, historically at tour sales, personal training. I could sell, I could sell it to, I could sell it to a shredder guy. I could sell training to trainers. Um, but it, it's to have to, and there are days that I get up and I have to wrestle with my depression. I have to get up and be like, you know what? I feel like an absolute, like that tape that, that you're unworthy of anything good happening in your life because not, nothing ever good has, you know, that Eeyore type of, of personality. You remember Eeyore? Because I remember, you guys don't understand. Do you watch Winnie the Pooh now and you see that character Eeyore? He's that depressed donkey and he's got a tail. You guys look at the tail. If you have a stuffed animal, it is a ribbon with a pin, like a bobby pin. Is it a bobby? No, it's not a bobby pin. A safety pin. And, you know, somebody ripped off his tail, number one, which is horrific. Number two, um, somebody replaced it with a, <laughs> they pierced his ass the original Eeyore, the one that I remember from the Disney books, had a tail that was a board with a nail in it. Who came up with this image? Oh my God, it's horrific. Somebody sodomized the donkey. Okay, want to know why he's depressed? Don't give him Seroquel. Take the fucking nail out of his ass. The poor thing. <laughs> like, like, who? This is why we need to go back and re-examine. Like, you know, cancel culture hasn't gone back and and really looked at Little Red Riding Hood yet, and looked at the cultural ramifications of the. <laughs> you know, you talk about glass ceiling. This is just, but all the Hansel and Gretel. That you know, you go to this candy house, which is a kid's dream. And this is, like, if if I could have masturbated at six, it would have been over a gingerbread house, not a girl. You know what I mean? Like sugar, sugar still is very important to my life. I love it. And um, back then, that story just horrified me. Of course, of course, if I see a candy house, I'm gonna start eating it. But it had fattened him up so the girl, so the woman could be a cannibal. Like really scary shit. So uh, we probably relook at some of those. But uh, I don't know. I digress. I digress. I've talked a long time about stuff here uh just so you know uh this girl and i did break up and when we broke up i was still living with my grandmother and about a year later i got um i had this ex-girlfriend that i was still friends with it was the first girl that i dated after my mom died uh and she was, you know, she wasn't the one. She was a perfect transition girl to get back into, you know, dating life and, and looking. And she was stone cold crazy. I know I say that a lot about a lot of people. But, uh, you know, you can only notice crazy when you're crazy. And I can notice crazy. And she, um, she's like, well... I was. I said, listen, you know, I, I think I made a mistake with my last girlfriend. I broke up with her and I didn't want to and I'm, I'm really feeling like I want her back. And she's like, well, why don't you write her a letter? And I was like, Bow? I was like, Scooby-Doo. Like, I didn't know I could do that. Like, okay. So I wrote her a letter, put it in an envelope and popped it on over to her. And, and it was, listen, I'm sorry, you know, but if, if you want to re-examine or re-explore this then let's do it and I got a response she called me one night while she was on the way home from some concert that she had gone to and I was I was like so psyched I was like oh my god she's calling me and I was back I guess I was back in love with her but it, it didn't feel the same it did not feel the same it was a it was desperation it was hey I let something go and I want it back which it was spoiled by then so we started talking again and I had just bought um, my first Nissan Xterra and I got uh, and my my history with cars I'm not a car guy I don't give a shit what I drive but this car was just kick-ass I just I wanted to go out and buy something that I chose and up to then when my grandmother or somebody else was buying a car for me I you know it was always well let's get something safe that drives in the snow and you know it took all the sex right out of you know the sexy cars that I wanted because you can't drive a Trans Am in New England. You know, there's eleven months of the year you can't drive that thing. 
you have a window of 30 days spaced throughout the year where you, the conditions will be decent enough for you to be able to drive something like that. But other than that, that's just a sled. And I bought this truck and I had it at the time and I was like, and she was just so, she's like, no, I don't want to get back together with you. She just wanted to know why. She was just so hurt that she was at the why point and she wanted, and I can tell you this in hindsight, she wanted to get me back so she could torture me because that's exactly what she did. She said, okay, as, as we started to talk and, you know, things looked like we were going to get back together, she said, well, if we're going to get back together, I'm not living at your grandmother's. And my grandmother was an asshole to her. My grandmother does not like other women, never did, never liked anybody's girlfriend, didn't like anybody's wife, uh, all, had tension with her son, my dad's brother, over who he chose as a wife. Never liked any of my dad's girlfriends, never, certainly didn't like this one. And I think it's because she was bald. I honestly think it's because my grandmother was bald absolutely think that when she looked at this girl with beautiful long flowing blonde hair she's like i don't have that i mean I, that that's one of her lies is that my grandmother's bald head made her unworthy or made her you know different then and she, and the other reason why i think that is because she said it she's like that god because you know she would come over a lot and stay a lot and it was weird having somebody over at my grandmother's house especially having sex in my grandmother's craftmatic adjustable bed but if you've never done that some of the ways that that bed that bed lifts and goes are beneficial and some of them you'll walk away pulling a hammy i can tell you that so if you if you're into that and you you know you're at that place in your life where you can get a craftmatic adjustable and try to get get freaky on it um you know Drop me a line, I might have some pointers for you. But um, she said, you know, I insist. And my grandmother would be like, you know, I find her goddamn hair all over the place. Goddamn. You know, she always goddamned something that she felt very strong about. And that's when you knew, uh-oh, grandma's not fucking around here. So she did not like, uh, she did not like this girl. So this girl noticed that. She felt it. She said, listen, I don't feel like she likes me, so uh, let's get an apartment. And this is when we found the cutest little apartment on Carlton Street in Salem. Um, I loved it. It was this little in-law apartment. There was the, the door to get in from the living room into the kitchen was tiny. It was like half a door because it was never supposed to be a door. Like they took this, they took a house that was all one house and sectioned it into two, a bottom apartment and a, and a they took two floors above. So it was three floors. The landlord had the floor above, the apartment above and another floor above that. And we had this little space, little tiny. I mean, the bathroom was, it had enough room for a stand-up shower and a toilet. The toilet, your knees were almost touching the door of the toilet when you sat down. That's how tiny it was, but I loved it. It was centrally located in Salem. It had a front row seat to all the Salem activities. And we started living together, but something was distinctively different about our relationship. We immediately fell into sex was an issue. She said she didn't want to do it because she didn't trust me and she didn't know if it was going to happen again. And I was typical like, uh, you know, well, if we're not doing it, why are we together? And we went to a concert one night and, and there was just so much tension between us. She was hurt and she wasn't, she's licking her wounds and she decided that she's not going to, you know, they're not going to heal with me around. And she just tortured me with it. And rightfully so. She, you know, I would have done the same thing. Bravo. Um, but, you know, that's it's a recipe for failure. It's a recipe for failure and it's not going to work. And we lived together for about a year. And she started coming into the gym. And this is, this is a girl that worked out, but she wasn't into it. Like, I couldn't get her to do it more than a couple times a week. You know, she, she trailed off a little bit as we got deeper and deeper into the relationship. And then she started coming in. She started showing an interest in coming to the gym. And I noticed that she had an interest in going down to the dumbbell area where all the heavy dumbbells were, where all the guys hung out. And I noticed her one night talking to one of the dudes, some redhead dude, some ginger kid I hated. And I only hated because I was jealous. Then I went and I saw them talking again. And then when she came home that night, I said, well, who's that dude you were talking to? Because at that time, I was a jealous person. I experienced uh, pretty serious 
levels of jealousy over anything. If we were walking and yeah, I did not like that part about myself and, and what that brought out in me. But when I do fall in that kind of love, that's how I get. And I asked her about it and she said, oh, he's just a friend. Um, I think she mentioned that they had, they were, uh, he went to Salem State and she went to Salem State or something. Then a maintenance kid came up to me. I had this maintenance kid that worked at night just scrubbing down machines. And he came up to me and said, Brian, I'm not looking to fuck around with you. I'm not looking to start any shit. But I got to tell you, I noticed them talking a lot. And the other day they exchanged numbers. And I was like, dude, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. But I was like, what the fuck, man? I was pissed. So I go home that night and she's watching TV and she's like, oh, you know, she tried to pretend like everything was fine. And listen, up at that point, nothing was fine. And um, <laughs> I sat down and I said, listen, I uh, love you and, you know, I want to stay with you, but I will not sit here and uh, watch you show interest in another person while you're living here. And she immediately started crying. She's like, I don't know what I want. And I was like, well, you cannot know what you want, all you want, but it ain't gonna be here. You know, pack your shit and get out. Like, what the fuck were you planning on doing? You were already staging the next dude, but you were gonna live in our apartment while you did it? I was like, that's, that's shitty. But this is again, like, this never, ever, ever get back with somebody that you fucked with. Don't do it. I'm telling you not to do it. Um, I just realized that I didn't have my microphone plugged in for a long time. So part of this recording, I think 17 minutes in, I think that whole thing was just done with the, with the Mac computer, but I really like the content of what I'm doing right here. So I'm not going to change it. So if the audio sucks, I apologize. So we broke up and I went into a tailspin. I went in a, and listen, if I were. The other thing that determined, you know, of the myriad of things that determinism taught me was that a lot of times the amount of pain that gets let out over a situation isn't commensurate with the situation. So look at this situation and look at our history. We, you know, we were together for 10 months. It was all lust. When the lust wore off, I took off to find lust with somebody else and she got hurt. And then I came back and I wanted her back, but she wasn't in a place to accept the fact that we were together again and that she should let all sleeping dogs lie. She wanted to unearth the sleeping dogs. One night she had me sit down and read her diary. And she wanted to go back to the time when we were broken up and how bad it hurt her. And she showed me, you know, I'm looking at this page, I'm reading this. It's just a, a page from her broken heart that just made me feel like absolute shit. I go in, I bring it into Bob. And the first thing Bob says is, uh, don't read your mate's diary. Don't do it. And again, he had to reiterate. He goes, Bri, I got to ask why you're still in this relationship, given that you have, you know, you have a, you know, the percentage of complaints not... Uh, they're not commensurate with, commensurate with how much you're, you're saying that you enjoy this situation. You don't talk about the reasons why you're in it. You're talking about reasons why you'd like to leave it. So why are you in it? And I, I wouldn't listen to it. You know, so not all therapies. I didn't take every single suggestion. As a matter of fact, I would have to wait until I was at the ultimate point of suffering before I would change a situation. But, you know, some people need a significant amount of pain. So she left and um, I, like I said, I went into a tailspin. I, it was very difficult for me to deal with that. But again, again, Bob made an excellent point was that leaving is something you're used to. Abandonment isn't something that you should, that you should be, not that you should be used to it, but the, the level of pain you are saying that you're in is not commensurate with meeting somebody, being with them for 10 months. Uh, breaking up with them, getting back together with them, being with them for about another, close to another year. Like that's a very short span of time. That's short, shorter than two years you know this person. But the level of pain I said I was going through, I can't eat, I can't sleep. This was the, the obsession came out. I got obsessed about like, again, like I heard this song on the radio. I was on my way to work. I called work. I said, hey, uh, I'm going to be late. I didn't even, I didn't even try to come up with an excuse. My boss was like, what are you going to be late for? And I said, well, I just heard this song and I broke up with my girlfriend and I'm going to go get the CD and I'm going to leave the CD on her windshield and I can't be at work until I do that. She's like, are you serious? I'm like, yep, I have to do this. She's like, okay. Th I mean, thank God she didn't just automatically go and write my pink slip and said, let's get rid of this tool. 
they ended up promoting me and giving me my own gym. That's how good I was. But I was, as I was driving to go get that CD at Best Buy and go bring it to her, there was screaming. There was a side of me that said, Bri, stop this. Stop this. This, this is not, this girl's not going to ever give you the love that you, that you need. And she's never going to make you feel worthy. So the problem here isn't that I'm in a relationship or the things that I did or the circumstances or any of that doesn't, it's how worthy and, and can my neurotic side sit and survive this? And my neurotic side couldn't. My neurotic side, like everything else I do positive in my life, my neurotic side sees it as a threat to the status quo and says, let's destroy it as quickly as possible. Destroy it and beat it into submission. So that, that's my deal. That, that is my first experience with love. It made me crazy. It com completely consumed me to the point where my unconscious says, we got to get out of this to, to save face, right? The only way I'm going to survive this or, or live this and, you know, all blown out of proportion. But it was the first of three that showed me that I don't work in that scenario. Again, you could say, oh, Brian, that's negative and you'll find love again. And I, and I will, I'm sure that the universe is not, but I am actively avoiding it. I actively in my heart don't want it. It's just too risky for me. I just don't work in it. And you know, as much as I have uncovered multiple beliefs that are lies, you know, a couple of them that I brought up to you today is that, you know, got to defend mom. That's a lie. And that I'm unworthy. It's a lie. It is a lie that I believe and is backed up by so much of my behavior that um, I can't deny it. And nothing to me is more effective therapy wise than that, than something that gets you to see that. And, and that's why I say determinism saved my life. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It's a lot of fun to make as it always is. I love doing these. This is actually my sixth or seventh take of this, which is why audio problem or not, I'm gonna release it this way because um, I love the content. So um, please reach out if the audio is so distracting that you can't take it because I am trying to find a better studio to do this stuff in. And by studio, I mean, I'm in a closet somewhere in you know where I live. And it's not as I can't surround myself with padding and stuff like that like I could the old way. So I hope that doesn't bore you and I hope it doesn't affect your enjoyment of this. Guys, have a great week. I'm going to talk to you next week. We're going to go into uh, a lot of discussions about what my anger is, what it isn't, what your anger is, what it isn't. Really interesting stuff here. Really uh, mind-changing and um, belief-changing stuff about your anger and your place in the world. So stay tuned for that coming up episode seven. Stay tuned.